0: In infancy, the amygdala, if the baby receives responsive care, nurtured care, care towards a secure attachment, right? They're all all kind of grouped together. The amygdala grows to have an adaptive response to stress for life.
1: Are there things we can do as parents to influence the way our child's brains form when they're young? to make them less susceptible to mental health struggles like depression, anxiety, or addiction? The answer is yes, and it's simpler than you may think. Joining me today is Dr. Greer Kirshenbaum. Dr. Kirschenbaum is a neuroscientist, a doula, and the author of the book, The Nurture Revolution, Grow Your Baby's Brain and Transform Their Mental Health with the Art of Nurtured Parenting, which I absolutely recommend for any parents who want to learn more about how we can use nurturing to support our children's mental and physical health. I had so much fun geeking out with Dr. Kirschenbaum about the brain and how we can use science and research to raise a new generation of children who are healthier, happier, and more resilient. So I cannot wait for you to hear this episode. Hi, I'm Dr. Sarah Bren, a clinical psychologist and mom of two. In this podcast, I've taken all of my clinical experience, current research on brain science and child psychology, and the insights I've gained on my own parenting journey, and distilled everything down into easy-to-understand and actionable parenting insights, so you can tune out the noise and tune into your own authentic parenting voice with confidence and calm. This is Securely Attached. Hello, welcome back, everyone. Today we have a really exciting guest. I'm like super excited about the conversation we are about to have. Dr. Greer Kirschenbaum is here. She is a neuroscientist. She's a doula and she has a new book out called The Nurture Revolution and it's all about growing our babies' brains and and the link between that and their mental health and this nurtured parenting approach. So welcome. I'm really, really excited to talk to you.
0: Thank you. I'm so happy to be here.
1: Yeah. And before we hit record, I have to say, I was talking with Dr. Kirshenbaum about the fact that I was on Instagram last night scrolling and I saw that Rafi
0: posted about your book and I was like,
1: ah, that's so exciting. He's like, that made me so happy.
0: Yeah. It's amazing. He's been nurturing babies and children for decades, right? Like, I grew up with him. I think I went to his concert when I was little. My friend was in one of the videos that we had at home, like she was like in the audience and That's she was so like famous funny. in our like school because <laughs> <That's> <laughs> um, so and he's still, he's still doing amazing work. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I am a That's huge cool. fan.
1: As a kid, I was a huge fan and I'm still a fan of all the stuff he's doing now. So I, I just thought it was funny. Cause I was like, I'm going to be talking to her tomorrow. That's the best little fun connection. It is. He's
0: awesome.
1: But so tell us a little bit about your work. Like you have a lot of things, that, a lot of hats that you wear and you yeah. do some cool stuff.
0: Yeah, I really mixed a lot of experience together um, and kind of developed yeah a new kind of career for the past sort of eight years or so, um, which is pretty exciting. But yeah, I think, I think my book and my work is really a reflection of my entire life in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was a really high needs baby growing up, I needed lots of holding, sleeping close. Uh, I breastfed for many years, slept, you know, in my parents' bed um, and just cried a lot and didn't sleep a lot. So me and my brother were both like this, right? And there's a lot, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of highly sensitive babies um, that fall into this category. So I feel like speaking for the babies, I really, <laughs> really am speaking for these babies, but all babies. Um, having experienced that, in combination with other things, I was always kind of really aware of everyone around me, everyone's emotions, everyone's kind of pain and struggles throughout my life, I could see. Mm-hmm. And um, that drew me into neuroscience. I was like, I want to understand how does the mind work? How, like, why are people wounded? What's going on? And so I studied neuroscience in my undergrad, I did a PhD and a postdoc. And, um, yeah, I was really drawn to the early life experience, like combining the babies, the baby stuff with, you know, the mind, like how does baby's experience, you know, develop the mind and brain. And so mm-hmm. over my years in neuroscience, doing lots of research and hours and hours and hours of <laughs> observing <laughs> behavior, I observed a million hours of behavior, which More I probably time. had already been doing my whole life. Um, I was really good at it. Um, I i could see the research you know supporting that idea that early life experience is incredibly important um for our lifelong mental health all like over my 20 year career all of that work had come out like it was just coming out coming out coming mm-hmm. out i was saving all the studies i was going to those posters at the conferences and um at the end of my postdoc all my friends were having babies and then we're not aware of any of this information yeah. and we're actually engaging in practices for babies that went, were like contra indicated, right. Um, yeah. you know, compared to the research. And I was like, you know, I need to get this information out. Um, so yeah, then I trained as a doula, worked as a birth and postpartum doula for many years to try to, understand families and how how to bring this information to families Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. and so all of that experience is now finally in this book that I dreamed of for many for like a decade um and yeah I'm so happy that it's finally finally all together
1: oh congratulations and honestly this idea that like you bring up something that is top of mind for me all the time which is like okay we, you and I have this sort of kind of unique opportunity to have access to this research, but it's so important that the absence of access to this research could literally shift the trajectory of like a generation of children that are being raised right now, which is like, not to like freak anyone out, but like there's some serious implications for that. Yeah. So, and it's new in the, in the grand scheme of like the timeline of psychological human research and research Mm -hmm. of development, we are like really early on. I mean, this like you said, like in our career lifetimes, and we're not that old. No. Um this is just coming out to the scientific level, right? To the to the doctoral level researchers, to the not to the mainstream. And I think now, fast forward 10, 15, 20 years, we are seeing it get a little bit more, um, what's the word, like disseminated out Mm -hmm. into like the lay work of like people reading things and understanding this. And I do think we are actually a generation of parents currently who have way more access to information that is accurate about child development and brain development and that interplay of the parent and the child and that relational piece to development and how critical it is. Yeah. So it's a, it's a great time to be a parent actually, but there's still a long way to go. I think to get this information accurately translated out into the mainstream, which I feel like you are amazingly doing. So grateful for that.
0: Yeah, I completely agree. And I also think like, it's such a good, it's such an important place for parents to start knowing that like, this is, brand new, we're probably like the first person in our family, in our ancestry lineage, you know, a few at least a few back to be practicing this type of parenting. Um, you know, some of us experienced it a little bit, but not really to that full extent. And so, you know, we're gonna have those influences that are, you know, probably lower nurturing and we're gonna always be, you know, needing to do work to you know, to do our best, um, to nurture. Um, and for people who haven't been right, they can like have compassion. You were doing, you know, following what our society has been guiding us to do if it's different. Yeah.
1: And you bring up a really interesting point because yeah, we're talking about, okay, Ooh, this is the first generation of kids that are like kind of more not globally, unfortunately at all, but many, many kids that are being raised right now are being raised by parents who are influenced to some degree by this information. Okay. Um, but those parents that are raising those kids, when they were kids were raised by parents who were not influenced by that information. And so we, I mean, we talk a lot in this podcast about like intergenerational transmission of mm-hmm. trauma, of attachment styles, of parenting styles, all those things. And so yep. we're, we're at this sort of unique cusp in the, the timeline, in the history where we're, we have a group of parents raising a group of children in a way that is profoundly different probably than the way the last many 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 generations of parents were raised themselves yeah, so absolutely. it's absolutely we talk about cycle breaking this is like the time of the breaking of the cycles yeah which is a profound moment in our history which is kind of cool
0: it is it's amazing it's amazing and it does take time right i think some some people i work with are they come to me like you know knowing I, they had really, really difficult experiences as a baby, as a child, you know, with relationships with their parents and they want to give something totally different to their children and, you know, know that how hard it is. Right. They're like, I can't change all of it. Like that's, Mm -hmm. that's too much. And I'm always, you know, always encouraging them, whatever we can change. Like if we change five things out of a hundred, you are breaking that cycle that much, you know, and, in order for your child to have a different modeling, different experiences, a different brain, you know, to pass on later. Yeah. Yeah. So let's,
1: can we talk about the brain science a little bit? Cause I'm a total brain nerd. I love it. And I would love to hear what you are, you know, what the research is showing, what your book is talking about in terms of like, when you say we're going to pass on a different brain, Mm-hmm. What kind of that brain is that? What changes would we expect to see in a brain that is raised in the, in this sort of like nurturing way? And perhaps we need to define to nurture, nurtured parenting a bit as well.
0: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So I'll define nurtured parenting, um, first, um, everyone can have you know there's lots of different gener- uh, definitions there's gentle parenting responsive parenting um you know my definition i've taken from the neuroscience literature and you know in short it's a really intentional and conscious relationship where you're in like an emotional and physical relationship with your baby um where you're responding to their needs accepting their emotions um, supporting them, you know, supporting those, the, their behaviors, understanding what emotions and needs might be underneath their behaviors and kind of teaching them about their emotions um, starting from birth, right? Which might sound bizarre. Um, not, also, not if you've
1: been listening to this podcast for a while, because <laughs> okay. people are like, I will tell parents, I'm, I'm very well known for telling parents, like speak to your infants yeah, because they might not know the words, but the tone, the facial expressions from birth, we should yeah. be having conversations. The second
0: they're born. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. So the communication is another part, right? Nurtured communication, making sure you're having those conversations face to face, you know, totally like without distractions, without phones, without, you know, all the things going on, just really having your presence be with your baby, you know, at regular times starting from birth. Um. Supporting their play and exploration goes along with that. The next big part is nurturing stress, so you know accepting mm-hmm. them regardless of the stress in their body and being there, you know, to lend them, you know, our mature brain to bring them from states of high stress to low stress in a reliable way. You know, so, similar yeah. to the touch. <laughs> we talked about this before, right? I think all a lot of the para, like the the systems in the brain that develop. Secure attachment and develop this brain circuitry, this you know regulated stress brain circuitry that I talk about. They develop in parallel; they're developing at the same time in different you know parts of the brain um, in response to this kind of nurtured parenting. Um, Would
1: you make the argument that the the structures of the stress response in the brain and the structures of the brain that are being formed in in like the neural networks that, that represent that secure attachment relationship, Mm -hmm. would you say they inform the health of one another?
0: I don't know about that. I don't know about that. I think, I think as far as I've looked at it, they sort of seem to be developing at the same time. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, if I think about like, yeah, I don't know if like the, the areas connect necessarily, but
1: no, but I'm thinking less about like, are they physiologically connected but more like correlationally like if you right. are develop like if one isn't developing properly mm-hmm. can mm-hmm. the other fully develop properly
0: yeah 100% because i think when we you know are parenting towards a secure attachment and towards a nurtured brain you know it's essentially paying attention to the baby's nervous system paying attention to their stress buffering their stress being responsive um interacting with a baby Um, so the same kind of experience is building both. Right. I think when, you know, if we're, you know, avoiding our baby or, you know, their stress, you know, ignoring it, dismissing it, which would lead to more of like an avoidant attachment, um, or we're inconsistent responding, which could lead to like an anxious attachment that's stressful for the babies. Right. Mm -hmm. And so that, experience of stress, you know, if it's repeated, if it's the norm, you know, experiencing daily, that's going to influence the way that, yeah, the brain develops for sure. In so interesting. System.
1: Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about these, the, the stress response, the structural pieces that are being developed from birth and how, mm-hmm. how they have an interplay
0: with the way we're like
1: kind of raising
0: yeah, the world? Absolutely. The last, I to say the last part of nurture in my model is also nurtured sleep. So presence, empathy, connection, stress, and sleep. Those are the five areas that I look at. That makes um, sense. So yeah, so the brain science is incredible and fascinating. Um, these, I, As I was writing my book and going through all the research, I remembered where I was when all these different pieces came out. Um, and it's so cool because it's it brings in so many aspects of biology, like the, the way that we nurture babies is changing their DNA, their protein expression, the way that certain parts of their brain develop, the way their neurotransmitters develop, the way their gut, you know, gut microbes develop. It's, it's incredible, um, the amount that it can do. And because it changes epigenetics, um, which are markers on DNA, the nurtured experience does get passed on to the next generation. So if your baby receives high nurturing, their DNA changes. So they are going to tend to be a high nurturer if they become a parent. Same thing if they have low nurturing their brain, and which is many, many of us, right? Coming into this, Mm -hmm. um, we might have epigenetic markers that make us, you know, tend to be low nurturers. And so that's another reason why it's so much work to break these cycles right Mm -hmm. which we can it's just a challenge um okay so let's talk about the brain areas so so the main areas of the brain in stress are our amygdala which um is involved in detecting threats so threats in our environment a wild animal (laughs) um, you know there's all kinds of threats for babies, right? Separation is a threat to a baby, mm-hmm. um, you know, being hungry, uncomfortable, lonely. Um, these are all ways that babies detect threats, like they're different than us, right? Um, and then internal threats, so these might be more advanced, right? That us adults have, like an email, <laughs> um, a worry, a concern, um, but even things like that are acute threats, right? Like the traffic you know, incident or or things like that. Right. They -hmm. essentially alert our brain and body to say, Whoa, something scary is happening. There's a threat here. Let's get the body ready to respond. And so the next part of the brain that does that is called the hypothalamus, which is extremely complicated and interesting part of the brain. Um, And it, you know, starts the stress cascade into our bodies. So, you know, mounts, cortisol, adrenaline, all of the stress hormones we need to transform our brain and body into a state to respond to a stressor. And then the last part is a shutoff mechanism to turn off the stress. And so the breaks for the stress response are in the hippocampus and the prefrontal cortex. Okay. So in babies, they actually don't have that last step that can function. Mm -hmm. They don't have a break for their stress system. Their, their hippocampus is extremely immature and developing and their prefrontal cortex, same thing. What
1: age does it start to become like, because, you know, the prefrontal cortex isn't finished developing until like early adulthood. Yeah. So when does the hippocampus start to be able to link that prefrontal cortex activity enough that we can see reliable breaking, break action from our, for our kid's stress system?
0: Yeah. So it's about two to three years, which is why we define infancy as zero to three. Mm-hmm. Um, well, there's a few reasons why we define it as zero to three, but most, you know, one of the reasons is the amygdala hippocampus, And hippocampus take that whole amount of time to be developing. And they're a sampling experience in order to build and develop throughout those first three years. Um, So it's built then. The hippocampus continues to have new neurons added throughout our whole lives into adulthood through neurogenesis. And so through neurogenesis, it's one way that us as adults can optimize our stress system. So when we exercise, um, Mm. socialize, you know, do all of these like enriching things, the new neurons in our hippocampus can, you know, they're nourished to stay alive. It's one of the mechanisms of antidepressants. It's the reason why exercise is so important for our mood. And um, our prefrontal cortex can also continue to be remodeled, you know, as adults. We can continue to actually grow. Connections into our stress system to make it a stronger stop signal.
1: So, just to translate this, in case people are like, "What?" (laughs) Melting right now. Okay. So, what I'm understanding is, hopefully, my listeners are aware of the amygdala because I talk about that a lot. That's the threat detector, right? Always scanning the environment to see if we're safe or not.
0: Yeah.
1: Usually, when I talk about it, I bypass the the limbic system stuff because Mm -hmm. it's confusing. And I usually go straight to the, are we in fight or flight or are we in rest digest? Yeah. But what I'm hearing you say, if we're going to get really granular about this is one, that there's a series of steps that our brain goes through after we've detected a threat. And this is by the way, happening in like milliseconds, Mm -hmm. I'm assuming, Mm -hmm. um, that for like a mature adult brain or even a brain of like maybe a younger child, there's a process in place just all inside the brain's building blocks to sort of say, I see a threat. I recognize this as a threat. There's that like hippocampal response. Cause that's that memory. Like, Oh, I've learned enough to know. Yep. I'm an, I'm correct here. Mm-hmm. And then there's some communication between the thinking part of the brain, which is the prefrontal cortex and that memory system saying like, do we need to react? Yes or no. Quick decide, hit the brakes or mm-hmm. false alarm, hit the brakes or yeah. no, 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 no. This is for real. Get those sirens blaring like there's a fire and we're going. Yes. Now, babies don't have any capacity to make that decision. Yes. That decision-making skill gets better as they get a little bit past the sort of toddler stage, like that three years plus. But my guess is, since we know that the prefrontal cortex isn't done cooking until like 26, that's going to get progressively better over... Time probably yeah. still not perfectly great at three or four, which is why we see kids from like three, four, five, six, seven, even an adolescence, not always turning off their stress response
0: accurately. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. And the you know the ways we can help children past through age three, um, the strategies we can teach them to help them with their stress, like movement, breathing, you know, all the things we do that's, you know, going through those, those brain areas as well.
1: Right. So Uh, that's the neurogenesis piece, right? So by neurogenesis, you mean you're literally growing new bits in this brain, right? Like new connect, new neural connectivity in the brain. So that when we're learning, we're actually changing the structure of the brain. And the more we teach the right stuff, the stronger those breaks
0: Mm -hmm. can be. Yep. Is that correct? Yep. Absolutely. So much of adult Ooh. therapy, and probably, and I'm sure, and child therapy, and other kind of emotional regulation techniques and things we try, um, they're they're acting there in the hippocampus, um, you know, integrated into circuits there, into new neurons, and also in a connection between the prefrontal cortex to the amygdala, right? These inhibitory connections that mm-hmm. can say, "Oh yeah, I've learned this thing." You know, it's actually not a threat. We can, we can calm down. Like you, you don't have to now the response. So I'm glad we talked about all that because we'll understand the baby stuff even more. So in babies, not only, so they're not only are they, are we, you know, when we provide co-regulation and, you know, our presence when our babies are stressed to be that break for them, right? They don't have that break. They need us to go from a state of high stress to low stress. We don't. We help them in that moment because they're unable to get from that high stress to low stress on their own. But by doing that, um, as well as all those other things, playing, you know, the positive brain states as well, the communication, you know, the stress response, the sleep, we're building every single part of the of the brain that I just mentioned. So in infancy, the amygdala. If it receives, if if the baby receives responsive care, nurtured care, care towards a secure attachment, right? They'll kind of Mm -hmm. group together. The amygdala grows to what I would call to have an adaptive response to stress for life. So it's set, Mm -hmm. like a sensitive period where the sort of strength of the alarm in the amygdala is built. So if a baby's nurtured, their amygdala will grow up and tend to not get set off really really easily, not be hypervigilant, not mm-hmm. be set off by all kinds of, you know, unimportant things. Mm-hmm. It will grow up to have an adaptive response to be set off by really pertinent, real, realistic threats, right? That's that, that so the
1: filter by which it determines do I pull this alarm? gets more fine-tuned. Yeah. During the sensitive period.
0: Yeah. Then the hypothalamus also gets changed in a way. So the hypothalamus I mentioned is the part that releases the stress. You know, it kind of it has hormones that trigger, you know, huge cascade that eventually releases cortisol into our bodies. And the hypothalamus is nurtured so that it also lets out an adaptive amount of stress, like total cortisol. Um, with low nurture, the hypothalamus grows much denser um, stress-producing cells. So the actual stress response is, hu- is huge compared to high nurture. Um, it even works in the brake system too. So the hippocampus will grow under high nurture, will grow... Um, a very high number of glucocorticoid receptors which are stop receptors so you imagine the stress is flowing through the body if there's lots of these stop signals in the the hippocampus they latch on to that those that stress hormone and they shut off the system when it's Mm -hmm. when it's appropriate with lower nurture there's fewer glucocorticoid receptors there so it's much harder to actually stop the stress Mm. so more in the prefrontal cortex so the whole system under nurture is grows to be adaptive the whole system under lower nurture and a higher stress early life grows to make the you know amygdala higher more active leading to possibly more anxiety more worry more hypervigilance less time in those creative, cognitive, flexible social states that we kind of mm-hmm. want ourselves to be in. Um, the stress response is bigger and the shutoff is lower. Right. So it's 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 a it's a very different brain under those two. Interesting. Cases.
1: That's so helpful to to kind of explain. I will say I have a question for you about this. because um, I'm thinking I mean I'm a psychologist. I work with families with kids who have a lot of anxiety or mm-hmm. other like maybe OCD or ADHD or where there, you know, there's some atypicalities, I would say, let's just say to the brain, Mm -hmm. Um, regardless of nurture, right? Right. Like there's some, you know, I I have parents in my practice who are high nurturing parents who have kids who have tremendous anxiety. And so like, I'm curious, I, I imagine there is also some research that talks about kind of like how much of this is due. Obviously in certain cases we can kind of point to just the variable of nurture, high nurture, low nurture, on impacting these systems being built inside the brain. What is the research there? How do you explain some of these other situations that aren't maybe where you can, you can control for the variable of nurturing. Yeah. And looking at like sort of like other types of whether it's just, genetics or uh, like traumatic experiences unrelated to nurture and things like that.
0: Yeah, completely. So, so the, you know, the outcome of mental health is a, a, a sort of a dance between genetics and experience, right? They are both at play. So a lot of people who have extremely traumatic histories in their family, you know, which most humans on earth do. We have pretty traumatic histories. Um, that's inherited in through epigenetics. So if your ancestors were in war, famine, um, genocide, you know, all, had immigration in their history, right? Any sort of, um, you know, really adverse experience that was encoded into their stress system in terms of epigenetic marks. So that means that in that family, that stress system would tend to be heightened. And that could be in any part of that stress system that I mentioned, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when we nurture, it's, so, so every, you imagine every baby is born somewhere along a, stra- a spectrum of like stress reactivity, or mental mm-hmm. health vulnerability to, to, um, yeah, opposite vulnerability, uh, resilience, right? So, you know, imagine, you know, a, a child, like you just mentioned, perhaps their history, and we also have our genetic code, right? Which can also influence mental health outcomes. So, you know, a child, like you just mentioned, they might be inheriting, a genetic code that puts them towards that more susceptible end of mental health. They -hmm. might be inheriting epigenetics that also put them towards that susceptible end, but nurture is still having an impact in that child. Yes. So if that family is nurturing, you know, let's say that child's at the far extreme end of susceptibility to mental health issues, that nurture that, that family did move them closer to resilience. And that doesn't mean that the outcome is perfect mental health. I don't think anyone would ever ever have that. Um mm-hmm. anyway, but it still matters. It's still really important. Yeah. Because that family through nurture was also able to reverse a lot of those epigenetics that that child had. Like not fully take right. them all away, but it it absolutely moves them towards resilience, and that's unique right. for each person because everyone's starting somewhere different on that spectrum. Right
1: that's i think a really helpful distinction and like kind of a frame to look at a lens to look at this through because i do i could i can just i i can like hear the the parent listening to this podcast in my mind who's got like who is like really done this work right has yeah, really absolutely. worked on becoming attuned a and Responsive and nurturing parent, and still has a child who has exactly these things you're describing, like Mm -hmm. really high reactivity, a really robust stress response that takes them a long time to come back down from, and might be listening listening to this, being like, "But I'm doing all the things, and it's not making them not not like this. What am I doing wrong? And I just want to make sure it's really clear that like." you may actually be doing a lot to make it better and you're just not seeing how bad it could be Exactly, you've not been able to provide that nurturing yeah. because this child may just be born with these like biological markers that yes. put them at high risk for becoming sort of high anxiety, high stress response, low regulation.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And when we look at, you know, individuals that we all work with and know we're probably almost nearly all of us are probably born pretty susceptible these days, right? Like having inherited, you know, histories, the histories that we have, right? It's, um, we're all somewhere there. Um, And the other thing, you know, the other way is with low nurture, a baby who's born really susceptible, they're going to become more susceptible. Right. 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 So really like, you know, having compassion with these parents, have compassion for yourself because you've, you've done so much already. Like you said, you're not going to, doesn't mean that your child isn't going to have any issues. Right. I think it's going to take several generations to change, you know, what's, what's already, you know, sort of been built into a lot of us.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, that's important. I think that's and encouraging too, because it's like, don't stop, (laughs) don't stop what you're doing. Yeah. Even if you, if it doesn't always feel like it's working, like the science says it's working.
0: It's yeah. Working. It's, it's really a long game. Nurture is a long game. Like, it's not like you're going to start, you know, some of these practices and then immediately see a difference. Right. It's like, we're talking like years, right. You've already mentioned it takes 25, at least 25 years, um, you know, for our brains to go through adolescence. Um, the other thing that's really interesting and cool about the development of these emotional systems, you know, so my field is zero to three. This is a huge um, critical period, sensitive period for, for the stress systems and mental health to form. There's two others in life. Mm -hmm. One is adolescence. So nine to around nine to 14. Mm -hmm. And then the other is when we become parents, which I will talk about.
1: Yeah. I was matrescence is so something I'm super interested in. I feel like no one knows what it means. Can you yeah. talk about matrescence for a second? Can you define it for people?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So matrescence, there's also patrescence. It happens for, yeah, true for, um, <laughs> for, yeah, it's been studied really well in moms and dads, um, biological moms and dads, and also adoptive and biological, um, uh, gay dads. um, So it does, and like there's still more groups that we need to include because so many other people become parents, but it does seem like um, for everyone who becomes a parent, their brain undergoes like huge reorganization, huge neuroplasticity, and many, and I highlight this in my book as well, almost all of those brain parts that I just mentioned, they become plastic again when we become parents.
1: So does that mean that by having an environment that is very high nurturing of parents could in theory reverse or structurally shift a person's sort of hardwired stress response and vulnerability to mental health, Mm -hmm. poor mental health outcomes?
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's a really incredible opportunity for parents to reshape their mental health. In, in, when they have a baby, yeah, and that
1: is so exciting. Though
0: yeah, it's really incredible. It's really incredible. So, if you're
1: listening to this, and you have had mental health challenges in your life, or any sort of traumatic experience or adverse experiences, whether they were in childhood or later in life. There's this new kind of like opening window of opportunity to do some serious healing of those, like literally healing those brain systems in this sensitive period of matrescence or patrescence. Yeah. And in, yeah. and if I'm not mistaken, you go through matrescence or patrescence with every child you
0: have. Yes, you do. You do. Um, yeah. And that's it. I think I met so many parents along my way that were like, you know what? I wish I had done way more therapy before I had a child. There's so many more things I had to change. And I, was, I don't think I was ready. And I, you know, based on this work, you know, I say to them, this is the perfect time <laughs> to be healing. Yeah. This is the time to be healing. You know, both. You know, the more and the other thing that's important about it for people to know is the more time we spend nurturing our babies, holding them, smelling them, feeding them, taking care of them, attuning to them, the more our brain changes in, through matrescence and patrescence. So,
1: so there is an about. interplay, um, a biological feedback. That is occurring so that when we nurture our child, we are also receiving very similar effects. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I imagine
1: this has impacts and implications for even the treatment of perinatal mood and anxiety disorders.
0: Yes, because, you know, in my experience working with many families as a doula, so often like medical advice was like, get the baby away from them, like let them heal, sleep whatever, until they're feeling better and medication is starting to work and all this kind of stuff. And really with, you know, if it's possible with support, we actually want to keep the baby very close. Right. right?
1: And that's why like in our practice, we actually do a lot of like parent infant dyadic therapy when, 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 um, mostly with women, but we would do it with a dad too. But like when a, when a mom is having postpartum depression, and is having that difficulty sort of feeling that bond with the baby, then parent infant dyadic work can actually be really helpful Mm -hmm. um, because it is like kind of, it's that sort of facilitated safe space to kind of do that, have that co-nurturing experience kind of. um, And so that can actually be really helpful, helpful, which kind of totally makes sense when we're talking about it in this context.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's, you know, the presence of the baby is going to be releasing oxytocin, dopamine, quieting the amygdala in the mom, which mm-hmm. is so important. So then the opposite of that is you take the baby away for them to get better. And then their their brain chemistry has already changed. Their amygdala already changed. So they're going to have heightened fear, worry. Um, they're going to be lacking oxytocin and dopamine that they would be getting from the baby. That's all going to be beneficial towards yeah. healing. Yeah.
1: That's so interesting and super encouraging. Such a hopeful, like mm-hmm. nothing is done. Nothing is final. There's always these opportunities to like do something a little bit different and get a different effect. And it's not like, you know, you we, you hear like, oh, there's this critical period of zero to three. If I miss this window, I've totally messed up. I've yeah. missed it. Yeah. And the reality is, no, you haven't. And it's never too late to start doing this sort of nurturing approach to parenting. Um, and sounds like there'll be another opportunity in adolescence for that brain to open back up and for these new sort of like, and then again, for you as a parent, for you to be kind of shifting the way that you approach your own mental health throughout every iteration of parenting, right? Like multiple times, every time you have a kid, like, you know, I have a, a parenting course for zero to one. And I, Mm -hmm. I was like, I'm, you know, I love to get brand new parents into this course and that's great. Mm -hmm. But you know, who likes to take my course more than the brand new parents (laughs) are the second time parents. I get so many second time Uh, parents taking this course because they're the ones that are actually like, oh, you know what? Now that I've gone through it once and I'm about to go through it again, I actually realize okay, I want to do this a little bit more intentionally this time or I have have more awareness of like how much support I need and want this time around. And so, which speaks to this idea, is like it's not too late. The second time you have a child is also a really great time to do this work because obviously it's going to benefit your second child. It will benefit your first child and it's also going to benefit your brain that second time around because your brain is going through that matrescence sensitive period once again. Yeah. So cool.
0: It is. It's amazing. It's amazing. Yeah. When you're, um, just talking about it, not being too late, I wanted to add, you know, there's a study in, you know, a lot of the low nurture, you know, environments were studied in, um, children who were raised in orphanages. Mm -hmm. And so there was a study done. So, you know, the earlier they're adopted and nurtured, the better off they do for all social, emotional, co- cognitive measures, um, you know, as close to zero as possible. Um, but even for children who were adopted, you know, out of that sensitive period of zero to three, they, st- they still might struggle with issues in their childhood. But if their adoptive family is highly nurturing through all of childhood and then through adolescence, then it it does repair. It does repair, but it's that long game again. You're not, Mm -hmm. right. You're going to still, you have to remember how long the brain's developing for.
1: Yeah. Which is both frustrating and exhausting as a parent. Like, oh God, I'm going to have to be doing this very intentionally Mm -hmm. for 26 years. Mm -hmm. Dang, that's a long time. But also it's very hopeful because it's like, if you're coming into this information, Because, like we said at the beginning of this episode, this is all relatively new. Not everybody was informed of this.
0: Yes, when they
1: had a one-year-old, you know, when their baby was in the sensitive period, it's encouraging to know that, like, you've got a long time to shift.
0: Yeah,
1: and it it definitely has the potential to shift the actual develop, like, brain development of your child. Even if you are listening to this podcast and you have a Mm seven-year-old, it's not. Too late to make a. Of course, we're like it's not too late to change, but it's not too late to make a structural change in your baby's brain or your child, older child's absolutely. brain. So, absolutely, it's good to. It's encouraging.
0: Yes, yes, completely. I love this.
1: So, um, we were talking a little bit about like strategy. Like, if you apply these these approaches, can you? briefly kind of mention some of these approaches, like what would it look like? Mm -hmm. What are some of the the actual
0: things a parent might do that would help? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So, so I think the first, I started to talk about like the foundation of nurture is to have what I call a nurtured presence. And, and it's, it's hard to define, right. To have a presence. I remember the first time I heard this where I started as a doula and one of my uh, classmates I guess like someone who I was training with um they were a craniosacral therapist and and uh, you know I'm like oh what's going on with you what's new and they're like you know this I'm really really working on developing my presence right now and I was like what the heck I've never (laughs) heard that before um but it's it's really important right so our presence is you know how regulated we are how able we are to regulate Um, it's not about being like never stressed out at all. It's just about being like aware of our nervous system and, you know, aware of, you know, having effort to return, you know, to, to regulation as much as we can, um, and taking care of ourselves. But it's also, you know, a, a, like a mental stance that we communicate to other people. So for our babies, the presence they need is that they're seen, accepted, that they matter and are important just the way they are. They don't need to change to be loved and and accepted by us. Um, And that we're really, you know, glad they're here. That we're really, really, you know, happy that they're around, right? I think, Mm -hmm. you know, the older forms of parenting were not so.
1: It's so funny because when you say that last piece, it makes you think of like delight, which is a variable when we measure attachment security one of the big predictors of attachment security is can a parent delight in their child um and that makes me think of delight
0: from like mm-hmm. Mary worth work yes absolutely absolutely i think it's so important to show our babies that all the time and so um you know i in my parenting i try to you know at least once a day to be you know in delight of my of my son um and he loves it. Like we were in the pool the other day and I was just jumping up and down, you know, saying sweet things to him and he's like, Do it again, more jumping. Saying, <laughs> like, I love this. Oh, so sweet. Um and you know, and also allows us as parents, like in that moment I was so present, so anchored, you know, so like nurturing myself too. Like yeah. you know, so well, like, much gratitude.
1: There's such a mutuality there. Like when we are delighting in our child by nature of that delight we're we're feeling good. Yeah. Like, it's not performative. Like, real delight is, like, delightful for us. It's delightful. It feels really good. It's like, and to be fair, like, you do not need to delight in your children, and there's no way we'll ever delight in our children all the time. It's like, these are states that we move into and out of. We just want to make sure that they exist, right? That they're there sometimes, probably daily, um, but not 24-7, because that's not realistic and not necessary either. No.
0: No, no, that's way too intensive and high pressure and like just yeah, not real, not Not real. Not delightful. You can't be delightful
1: delightful 24-7. Nobody can. I don't care how cute your baby is.
0: No. Can't be delightful. It's always going to be a challenge too. It'll be challenging (laughs) times. Um, And so a huge part of that nurturing presence, I think, is to also be understanding that our children are going to have huge ranges of emotions all day, every day. Mm -hmm. And we need to have that accepting presence in all of them, which is a lot of asking a lot, right? It's asking a lot. We have to do a lot of learning, you know, in order to do that, because probably many of us were not accepted when we had high stress in our bodies, when we were angry, sad, you know, all those, these big emotions that we have. So often we were told, I don't want to see that. I don't like that. Go into another room until you're happy um, you know, things like that. And so switching that around to really be, you know, be accepting of everything is really, really important. I think they need to know that um, as well. Um, so that's a huge one. Um, the next one is, is what I call nurtured empathy. And so mm-hmm. this is helping our, you know, our children understand their emotions, right? really, um, you know, through empathy, through talking to them about their emotions, through linking their emotions to needs and meeting those needs. Um, in the literature, this is called reflective functioning or parental reflective functioning. Like, um, I learned from Aria Slade, um, -hmm. yeah, all, all of this stuff. Um, um, so important, so important. And I think, you know, both the presence and the empathy, I don't think many of us received growing up. This is all brand new as well. Um, I think myself and so many of my peers started to understand that we had emotions and we could express them probably closer to like age 30 um, <laughs> and age one or zero. Um, so we're kind of giving our kids a like 30 year head start to what many yes. of us um And I do,
1: it's funny because like, I feel like some parents instinctively get this. Mm -hmm. Like you don't have to be taught this by Mm -hmm. a neuroscientist and a psychologist, right? Like I do think like When I think, and I'm very lucky, when I look back at like my parents, like they were really attuned and I was allowed to have my emotions and they would help me name them when I was a kid. And perhaps that's one of the reasons I ended up, you know, in the field that I am today and why I do think I have very high reflective functioning as a human being.
0: Yeah.
1: But this isn't to say that like every single person that's, you know, raised by someone of of like a much later, earlier generation didn't get any of this. It's just... Yeah. You know, I think that it's not as it was not as common.
0: Yeah, it was not as common. And I think would have happened in different degrees. Right. It might it might have mm-hmm. happened, but it might have also been conditional. Possibly. Right. There's all different. Mm-hmm. mixes, Right. Like. Yeah. Like, it, might have experience- it
1: happened. From your parents, but not your school teachers, not the, you know what I'm saying? Like, I don't think you're getting it from all the grownups in your life as a real kind of, um, sort of wide reaching. This is what I can expect from all people kind of thing.
0: Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. We've had so much more work on how to, how to translate it, right. How to, how to help out. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then, Yes, the other parts are the connection part I mentioned, like making sure you have, you know, un, you know, undistracted, is that the right word? <laughs> you, have, you have no distractions and you're intentionally in a back and forth conversation with your baby and that can put that delight part, put that uh, presence part in there, right? You want to have presence for that. Um, just, you know, letting your baby lead a conversation. This is brand new to many, many parents that babies can do this. And they can do it from a couple hours old, like sometimes immediately when they're born. They can mimic facial expressions, um, respond to sounds, you know, really engage you in a conversation. Babies are really, really born ready to communicate. And that goes all the way through that zero to three. I think a lot of there's a difference between um, attachment and bonding, right? you know, the attachment is baby led where the baby is like, I'm making a sound like I'm inviting you in and you respond and then go back and forth and back and forth. And bonding is parent led where they're like, I feel like playing with you. So let's do this. And I'm kind of leading it. Right. So babies mm-hmm. do need that baby led back and forth. Mm-hmm. Um, that's called serve and return, right? There's great videos people can look up to see that. Um, and and then stress, right? We need to be there for their stress.
1: So mm-hmm.
0: it's that simple and that hard. As I yeah. always quote, Carly "I know, grow up, right?
1: We've yeah." A lot of episodes on like co-regulation and like how to do it. So if people are curious on like how do you actually like respond to your child's stress response, like I would definitely go check out those those yeah. episodes. I can takes so show much
0: more time. for our for us it's to be so comfortable, hard. right?
1: Right, it's, it is. It's a lot. I mean, it's a lot of stuff we have to do. It's a lot of stuff we have to do with our child. It's not easy. Like, not. I'm. There's no question that this nurtured parenting, or one of the million other ways we want to describe it, but like, mm-hmm. it is more work. Mm-hmm. It is. It is like you said. It's the long game. It's labor intensive. It's emotionally demanding. It yeah. requires a, a lot of sort of of work on our end, uh, self work and presence mm-hmm. work and it's it's yeah. not easy. There's no question. I think parents who recognize the, the value of this and, and commit to showing up and trying their best at it um, need to recognize that it's really, it's hard and it's worth it. It's really yeah. worth it, but and it's it really works. hard. So I don't want people to come away from this thinking like it, it. the expectation is like, you should be able to do this and it should be a breeze. It's just... Yeah. Yeah. You know, when you ask parents what they really want for their kids, they say they want them to be, you know, happy, healthy, well-adjusted, able to enjoy life and relationships. And this is how you really set them up for that. And so if that's what you really want, this might be more important than the piano lessons and the math tutor and all the other enrichment that we invest so heavily in. That's great. Sure. But I actually think investing in this is more important if you're gonna if you're gonna pick one.
0: Yeah, I agree a million percent. Yeah, I say the exact same thing. Absolutely. Yeah. I also think it's front loaded work, mm-hmm. because when you are nurturing, right, we are bringing them towards resilience wherever they start, like we mentioned. Um, but we probably are avoiding, especially in the baby years, if we if we're following as much nurture as we can we're probably avoiding a whole bunch of other work later on right to you know yeah have, the list of that is endless and um, both financial and time constraints that that can come up right from totally from lower nurturing so it's i, I, I think it's, i agree all parenting is a lot of work i think yeah. i yeah. think yeah. it's just front loading the, the work in the yeah. in the beginning
1: Yeah, totally. Well, this is a great place to start. I think, and I really, I really encourage anyone who found this stuff exciting. And even if you were like, oh my God, I'm, I'm overwhelmed, then go get this book because you explain it well and you break it down and it's real. you have imagery like pictures and illustrations that make it easy like this is a great book for parents who are like I gotta add you you've you've piqued my interest in why this is so important so where can they find your book where can they get in touch with you if they are interested
0: yeah absolutely Um, my book is available um, online I have a link on my website which is nurture neuroscience.com but it's available and all the online places and, and ask your local bookstore. Cause that's great to get yeah. that in and support those businesses too. Um, and yeah, you can find me on my website or on my Instagram account, which is nurture neuroscience parenting.
1: Amazing. Thank you so much. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. As Dr. Kirschenbaum and I were just discussing, many of the strategies we can use for creating healthy structures in our children's brain are also the keys for helping them form a secure attachment, which is a huge factor in lifelong mental well-being. If you're wondering what exactly you can do to help them establish that secure attachment bond, you're going to want to check out my free guide, The Four Pillars of Fostering Secure Attachment. Parents have a lot on their plate, so in this free guide, I simplify the principles of attachment theory and give you four straightforward things that you can focus on that's going to make the biggest impact on your child's development. So just go to drsarabrencom forward slash secure. That's drsarabren.com/s e c slash S-E-C-U-R-E to download it. I'll be back for another Beyond the Sessions episode on Thursday. And until then, don't be a stranger.